Our scientists have done things which nobody's ever done before. Yeah, yeah, but your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. Who are you who are so wise in the ways of science? I am Arthur, King of the Britons. Back off, man. I'm a scientist. When someone says they're a scientist, as Dr. Venkman of the Ghostbusters so expertly exemplified, it's almost a given that we immediately defer to them. The scientific method, after all, is one of the most reliable ways that we find out new things about our world. That assumes, however, that the science is done well, and we do tend to assume the science is usually done well. Unfortunately, that isn't always the case. Arthur, King of the Britons, didn't exactly have a strong evidence base for his idea that anyone who weighed the same as a duck must therefore be made out of wood and therefore must be a witch. The Ghostbusters had almost no real scientific evidence for the existence of ghosts, which resulted in a bit of bad PR by the end of the film. Even Hammond's Jurassic Park failed to consider the ethical aspect and potential implications of their dinosaur experiment. While these are all fiction, of course, there are many real examples out there of bad science, and they aren't as harmless as the movies. They fuel the fires of conspiracy theories, hurt innocent people, and delay scientific progress. This is our first episode in a new series on bad science. I'm Sam Marchetti, and welcome back to On the Sidelines. Joining us on the sidelines today to talk about the Stanford Prison Experiment and bad science is Garrick Patterson, a PhD candidate in nuclear engineering at McMaster University and a Science for Everyone researcher. Thanks for joining us again, Garrick. Ah, thanks for having me, Sam. Okay, so let's uh, let's get into it. We're, we're talking about bad science. This is the first time of a few that we plan to talk about bad science, but this is probably one of the most, you know, famous examples, I'd say infamous maybe, examples in the history of science. Yeah, I guess I would say famous initially, now infamous, probably. Now infamous. So so what was it? What, what was the Stanford Prison Experiment? Yeah, so like on the face of it, it seems pretty compelling. Um, it was done back in 1971 by a high up Stanford psychologist named uh, Philip Zimbardo. And he wanted to see what happens when you put good people in an evil place. So that's pretty heavy stuff. So what he did was he came up with a mock prison experiment with uh, college students, about 24 of them, and said, I'm going to make some of you prisoners and some of you guards. And he wanted to see whether or not this situation would go into complete chaos and cause people to do crazy things. So just a quick logic check, this guy thought putting college students into even more stressful situations was was not, he thought it, he thought it might not uh, end up being crazy. Yeah, it's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy at this point. <laughs> so, so it is important to note that all these students were males as well. So, uh, you know, from a standpoint of broad diversity, not not doing quite well there. Okay, okay, so all, already not the best sample. They were randomly assigned, but that's pretty much where where the experimental part ends. So they he he ended up monitoring these people over the, a span of six days, and he had to cut it short. It was actually supposed to be two weeks, but he cited that there was conditions of inhumanity 
that were arising. So he had to cut it short. He cut it short because of in, inhumane action. Like what? Yeah. So people were just losing their minds. Like the prisoners were going crazy and getting depressed and guards were like assaulting them and like berating them and, and all kinds of crazy stuff. Jesus. Okay. Uh, so did he claim to have like found anything at the end of this, even though he cut the experiment short like a week early? Yeah. He said that the complete scenario caused people to behave in this manner. So it was, it was the scenario itself that caused these otherwise normal students to behave in either sadistic ways or become depressed because of the oppressive atmosphere. So basically, he, he concluded that this evil place had, in fact, made people do things that are out of the normal for them. Wow. Even so, the experiment actually ending early, that actually, you know, kind of helps boost that claim, doesn't it? Because then he's saying, well, they, were so, they, be, they became so, you know, evil that I had to pull them out before they hurt each other. Yeah. And it, it's, it's a bit nuts because even, you know, he was feeling the pressures as well because he was still managing the experiment as well. So he, he was working, you know, 18 hours a day and stuff too. So, so what did we eventually find out about like, why is this bad science? What did we find out and how did we, like, how did it come out? Yeah. Initially I thought it would be all these recent findings and critiques of the study. Cause I, I had learned this long time ago and I was like, yeah, this is true. Um, but right after the study, like in two years after the study, a whole bunch of psychologists were coming out with critiques of this study. Um, and one that, that was kind of prominent in my mind, um, they, they basically said, you know, normalcy screening of these people. Like, what does that mean? Like, what is normal? Is that something, is that something that he conducted prior to the study? He conducted a, a normalcy screening of all his participants? Yeah, normalcy screening, but it's not really clear what that means. Does, like, does normal mean normal for his experiment or normal generally? Like what metrics, right? Okay, it's, very, yeah. it's very unclear. And in fact, not all the guards actually acted sadistically. Um, the The... This critique actually stated that when they when they went through the data, about two thirds of the guards actually didn't do that. So that actually proves that the environment might not have had any effect whatsoever. And so that that was fairly interesting to sort of come out recently after. And and as as time passed as recently as I think 2015 or so, more stuff came out in terms of audio recordings and written documentation that were archived at Stanford. And the audio recordings actually showed or guess indicated that they, they being the guards were given specific instructions to do things like um, oppress the prisoners and instill senses of powerlessness in them. And, and, one of the more interesting parts of that claim is that Zimbardo himself included these in his book in 2007 called The Lucifer Effect, and he still upholds the, the conclusions of this experiment today. So not only did he attempt to sway his you know, guards, his mock guards, 
but first of all, two thirds of them still didn't do it. And then at the, he exposed himself. Yes. And, and in fact, when a guard refused to act that way, uh, there's an audio recording of this guard saying, I'm not a, a sort of aggressive person. I can't act this way. They're like, well, you have to because the experiment needs it to succeed. And that's, wow. you know, you can't really say a power of the situation when you have an experimenter telling them what to do. I mean, I guess it is the power of the situation, right? But it's only the situation isn't what he was testing. It's the situation of being told by an experimenter what you need to be doing. Exactly. And that's a whole other field of study in psychology. So, Okay, so this, you know, overall, this is not a good experiment. This is clearly not good science. He did not follow any kind of, you know, solid protocol here. And yeah. he exposed his own mistakes. Why? Like, what did he gain from this? What did Zimbardo actually get from doing this? So immediately afterward, it was it was hugely popular in sort of a prison reform sense, but also in a people aren't very culpable if they're caught up in a situation, which is a very dangerous thing um, because you could just use it as a defense to get out of crimes. Um, so he became very popular in the limelight and and was on several like, panels for prison reform and things like that which i think you know to a degree is is useful but it's based on a lie <laughs> interesting so was it ever used in like court defenses like you know were were people ever charged with committing a crime and then after this they used the defense oh i was in a bad situation yeah actually uh an article came out and this the the person who wrote it uh, his name escapes me but his brother had committed a robbery on a bank with a group of people and a superior officer from the army. So he had claimed the defense that I was caught up in this sort of situation, like army-esque type thing. So I, I wasn't in control of myself. And he got out and later admitted to his brother that it was all garbage. He just made wow. it up because he knew it would work. So Zimbardo actually influenced a few people here. That's yeah, incredible. And, and a lot of like prison riots, it's just used as like, it's not like an individual's fault. It's it's just like, you know, the situation causes. Yeah, it's just the, all of this. the yeah. Wow, and, okay. And, you know, appearances on Dr. Phil and stuff. So <laughs> Of course, it always comes back to Dr. Phil yeah. in these kinds of situations, <laughs> doesn't it? So how, like, when I'm reading a scientific article, how can we, or how, you know, how are we right now ensuring that this kind of thing isn't happening in every paper that we publish? Like, what protocols are in place to kind of make sure we're not doing this anymore? Yeah, so I think primarily it does come down to the revision process that several journal articles have. But I think, um, as I think you've written about before, there's like some publication biases there. Uh, that need to be addressed yeah. and and so it's not perfect and there the main method basically is to make sure that the the publishing is actually peer reviewed when you when you go in to look at articles as a mainline thing but an ultimate check and a, a big a big thing for psychology right now is the repeatability of experiments and looking for those studies that are showing that these things are repeatable. 
So in the process of actually getting published, it's, you know, making sure that, you know, whatever's being proposed to be published is being looked at by other individuals who are in the same field and have knowledge in that field. And then on our end, it's making sure that we are, you know, sourcing articles from journals that do that. Exactly. Yeah. It, it does take some some work and practice, but you'll you'll be smarter for it for sure. All right. Well, thanks, Gary. And thanks for uh, thanks for coming on for our first discussion on bad science. I, I hope we see you again to talk uh, about uh, another example down the road. I'd be happy to. Yeah, and thank you all again for tuning in and remember to subscribe for more conversations and some insightful answers to your questions about the science impacting your world. If you want to learn more about the Stanford Prison Experiment, Bad Science, or any of the other topics that we've talked about on this show, you can visit us on Instagram or TikTok at SciForEveryone and on our website at scienceforeveryone.ca. For more information on COVID-19 vaccines, check out our sister podcast, Vaccination, available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. On the Sidelines is a podcast by Science for Everyone. It's produced by Sam Marchetti, Connor McLean, June Kim, and Cheryl Nguyen, with editorial help provided by Kayla Benjamin. On the Sidelines is sponsored by the University of Toronto's Student Engagement Grant.